Amen. Well, praise God for what he's doing um, through us and through them. We, it's a sad day, we, I'm tearing up, we are in our last sermon on Moses today. This is it. 50 weeks we've spent talking about Moses. I have a feeling if they put together a sermon series called Ryan, it would not be 50 weeks long. Like, my life's just not that interesting. Moses, we could talk for 50 weeks, and every week is like, wow, wow, wow. Let me recap what we have learned so far. Moses was sentenced to death at birth, drawn up from a river in a basket by a princess, raised royal and rich, but his heart broke for his people Israel when he saw them in slavery. He murdered an Egyptian slave driver and fled to Midian for 40 years. He spoke with God in a burning bush, returned to confront Pharaoh when he was 80, turned water into blood with his staff. He commanded swarming locusts, gnats, and frogs obeyed him. He made it rain hail and thunder and fire on the land. His staff could turn into a snake and back into a staff. He parted the Red Sea. He led people to Sinai where God set a mountain on fire and spoke in thunder, and the people begged that it would stop. God caused his glory to pass before Moses so he saw the trail of God's holy presence. Moses' skin glowed and he had to cover it with a veil. He endured 40 years of wilderness after people failed to enter the promised land. He ate miraculous food called manna every day. He brought a river of water from a rock so that a million people could drink. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, built the tabernacle while God's heavenly presence fell on the earth. And then after he died, he was called back by Jesus in the New Testament to meet Peter, James, and John and to hear of the wonders of the cross. Is there anyone like this man next to Jesus? What a life. What do we learn as we reflect on Moses' life and on the Israelites? What do we learn? What do we pull? What do we draw from all of this? It, it's great history, but isn't it more than that? Isn't it, isn't it more than a wow story that kids love to hear at bedtime? So to close this series out, we're going to look into the New Testament today. We're going to turn to the, uh, we're going to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because there the Apostle Paul drew from the entire Israelite experience and he, he basically wrote in 1 Corinthians a little sermon to the church in Corinth about Moses' life. So I'm going to take his sermon and preach it to us. And we'll learn as we, as we recap it all what the point was for us today. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you give us amazing stories filled with your glory and power and strength and might but also filled with practical wisdom for how we can know you and follow you. Open our eyes to see your truth today. Open our ears to hear from heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. We went through the book of 1 Corinthians several years ago, and, and back then I told you that if Corinth was compared to a city today, it would be uh, Las Vegas. Okay. So what happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth, if you know what I mean. It was, it was a derogatory term. You know, if someone were like, you're a Corinthian, you'd be like, take it back. Take it back right now. Because it, it means loose. It means uh, 
bad, wicked, evil, corrupt. So Paul, the apostle, is writing, basically this could have been called the, the book of like First Vegas, okay? A letter to a sinful, wicked, divided, carnal church. And he looks back to Moses and the Israelites to, to teach them a lesson um, about what it means to follow Christ. The title of this sermon is Escape the Wilderness. Escape the Wilderness. The Israelites have been languishing in the, in the wilderness for 40 years, and they finally, after Moses dies, get to get into the promised land. So what do we learn from that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says this, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us. For us. You see how the Old Testament was put in place to look ahead to the new. So you have Paul who in... A.D. 55, is living in Ephesus, and he's writing to one of his church plants. And he's using the Old Testament to show what we learned about God. Sometimes people think the Old Testament was when God was all angry and mad, and then in the New Testament, he got loving, right? That's not it. They, they work together, and both of them apply to us today. Now, I need you to know going into this that the first half of the sermon is point one and two. The second half of the sermon comes from point three. Some of you all like when we get to point three and you get your last blank filled in, you like to start packing it up, right? Right? All right. Look to your neighbor and say, don't do that. All right. Say, don't do that. Don't do that. Because when we get to the third point, there's still half the sermon. All right. But here's the first point. Number one, are you saved? Are you saved? The point of this message here is God's people were overthrown in the wilderness. Overthrown in the wilderness. So we're going to learn how to escape the wilderness. The wilderness of sin. How? How can we escape the wilderness? Well, it all begins when you look back and realize that God saves us, or at least He has to. Are you a saved person? It says in chapter 10.1, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers, who are the fathers? Fathers are the spiritual descendants of Israel. They were all under the cloud. What does that mean? God's special presence manifested in the form of a great, brilliant, fiery cloud. And God led the people out of Egypt. And, and by day and by night, there was, there was a pillar, there was a cloud, and God led them out of bondage. It says, and all passed through the sea. What is that? It's the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses. Do you see how he's grabbing New Testament language of baptism and imagery? And saying when they went through the Red Sea, it's like they were baptized into Moses. And the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. What's that? Well, that was manna, bread from heaven. Manna, bread from heaven. And ate the sa or drank the same spiritual drink. That was the water that gushed forth from the rock, right? For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now Paul makes the audacious claim here that Jesus was with them in the wilderness. Hold up there. 1400, 1500 B.C., 1500 years before he lived, Paul said Jesus was there 
Jesus is God the Son. He's an eternal being. He lived before he lived. So the point is this. We see through Moses that miraculous life came from above. And merciful freedom from bondage came from God. And we understand that this was all meant to be a preview of Jesus Christ. What Moses did on earth, Jesus does in heaven. Please understand this. The Old Testament is not just great tales with no point. Okay. The Old Testament, every event serves as like a light bulb in one of those big arrow signs. You know the arrow signs on the side of the road that point you in, right? Like a big blinking arrow. Every event in the Old Testament is like a light bulb in an arrow that points to who? That points to Jesus. And Paul is showing the Corinthians here that the whole point of Moses was not Moses. The whole point of Moses was Jesus. We have a picture here of the Red Sea. Now check it out. This is called baptism. What happens when you get baptized? What happens when you stand in front of a congregation and you say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior? Well, the water does nothing. Nothing actually happens in the tank. But the water symbolizes something that's happened to you spiritually, and this is what happened. Jesus himself opened up the way for you to pass through the waters of death and enter into a land of promise forever. Baptism shows you've been rescued. Baptism shows you've been led out of, it, out of slavery and into freedom. What a wonderful portrait. As the Israelites walk through that sea, Paul calls it baptism. And who is that there parting the sea? It's Moses, and, and, and Jesus is the one who can get you not just from one side of the Red Sea to the other, but from earth to heaven. That's a great deliverance. So the whole point here is, are you saved? Ha are, are you even included in the group that Paul is talking to here? Have you been, have you encountered the glorious presence of God in Christ? Has Jesus walked you through the sea of death? Have you understood that Jesus is the bread from heaven? Jesus said, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the manna. I'm the manna that can keep you alive forever. How long does a hot dog keep you alive? Right? For like three hours? Okay, then you need to go and fuel back up with like a Snickers bar. All right? All right? The reason why I'm here today preaching to you is because I ate golden grams before I showed up to church. That's what's keeping me fueled right now. No food, no life. But that can't keep you alive for eternity. You think you're going to be looking around for lucky charms in heaven? I'm dying. Jesus is going to keep you alive forever. He said, I'm the bread that's come down from heaven. Manna was pointed to Jesus. And then the water gushing forth from the rock. That looked ahead to the cross. Remember when Jesus was speared in the side, what gushed out? Water and blood. Water and blood. Right? And, and, and it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin. And Jesus told the woman at the well, I will give you living water. You'll never have to drink again. Do you see how your life depends on Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? Do you see how? He's just not one part of your life. He's not like some badge you put on a sash to show people, you know, that you're kind of into him. He is your life. He's what the whole Old Testament pointed to. So jot this down. Trust Jesus to set you free. Trust Jesus to set you free. This is written to us by the Apostle Paul. Do you know his story? He was a Pharisee. He was a legalistic religious ruler who had power, 
He probably had the whole, everything Moses wrote down, the first five books, Paul probably had it memorized. All right, you think a one is hard? Imagine memorizing the Pentateuch. He knew his Bible, but he missed Jesus and he started persecuting Christians. And finally, a light appeared and a voice sounded and Jesus said, Saul, uh, Saul, why are, you, why are you persecuting me, Paul? Why? Why? And finally, he's like, who are you, Lord? And, and so he was taken into the city. And then somebody showed up to him, gave him his sight back, and, and Paul rose up, and he got baptized. He got baptized. And this is the man that's telling us that baptism in the Old Testament as the people walk through the sea, that's what Jesus does for us. He rescues us. Hey, are you a saved person? If not, I just want it. Before we go any further, I want you, the Bible says, test and see. Test your own heart. Has Jesus saved you from death forever? I'm not asking you if you've gone to church or if you've given money to something or if you've attended religious education or if you've been baptized or or taken communion. None of that saves you. None of that saves you. Jesus saves you. Jesus saves you. Have you admitted that you're in bondage to sin and you need Jesus to save you? If not, make that happen today. Are you saved? Are you saved? Now here's number two. Are you stuck? All right, so many of you, if I say, are you saved, you would say, amen, right? Are you saved? Come on, are you saved? All right, are you stuck? Many of you would say, yep, I'm saved and I'm stuck. Life is not going the way that I want it to go. I'm not winning the battles I want to win. People aren't treating me the way I want them to treat me. I'm stuck. So we have a portrait here of these saved people who were stuck in the wilderness. And Paul's like, beware, beware, heed the warning and walk in victory. You want to escape the wilderness? Heed the warning of the Israelites. Walk in victory over sin. Here's a picture of a sheep who got stuck in a tire swing, a video. Check this out. A sheep is stuck. yep wait for me guys here i come (laughs) nope i'm not going anywhere and somebody help me anyone (laughs) all right listen (laughs) that is a hilarious portrayal of what happens when you and i get stuck in sin all right you're going nowhere all right, here I come. I'm going nowhere. I'm going to make it out. I'm going nowhere because you're stuck in your sin. And the Israelites couldn't get into the promised land because they were stuck, stuck in their sin. Are you stuck? Are you stuck on the way to paradise? Here's what we learn. Your faith will be tested. Your soul will be tempted. God will allow things into your life, people into your life to test your faith. This is called the wilderness. Some of you are there right now. It's, it's a hard place to be. It's not easy to honor the Lord. It's not easy to honor the Lord. When life gets hard and you feel abandoned or you feel confused or you feel afraid, you begin to doubt God, you begin to slip and lose your battles, you're in the wilderness. The wilderness doesn't cause you to sin. Wilderness intensifies the temptations that are already in your heart. Okay? 
This is very important to understand. That person in your life who's making it hard for you to honor God, they're not putting anything in your heart. It's already there, right? It, the buttons are already there. Maybe they know how to push them. <laughs> okay. But it's already in there. They're just intensifying the pressure for you to be that person that you don't want to be. Are you stuck? The, the, being tempted is not a sin. All right? Being tempted. Being tested. You know, saying to yourself, I feel like just, you know, burning it all down. Okay, that's not a sin. But if you do it, then it's a sin. All right? How you act on the temptation is the problem. And he says here, they were overthrown in the wilderness. In the wilderness. Don't be overthrown in the wilderness. Don't get stuck on the way to paradise in the wilderness. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That word for desire means to lust, to crave. It can, it, can mean, it can mean a strong, passionate, internal desire to have something. And the Bible says, don't, don't crave it. Jot this down. Don't crave sin. Don't lust after evil. Don't cling to things that you know, in the end, will cost you. One of the most disturbing things about being a Christian is realizing that sin is still appetizing. Am I right? Sin still draws our affections. Sin still seems like a good idea. Sin still brings us comfort when we run to it. And that's what makes it so hard. That's what makes it so difficult to resist. We all know what the word appetizing means. Am I right? This week, for the first time ever, our Ukrainian friends had deep dish pizza. And I knew on Friday night when I ate three pieces of deep dish pizza that it was a little too much. <laughs> and then on Saturday when I got home at night and I opened the fridge, guess what was there? Leftovers. Boy, I just had three of these yesterday. I really should have a healthy dinner today. How about I don't? <laughs> and I ate two more pieces of deep dish pizza. And there's still some left in the fridge. If I'm not careful, a whole deep dish pizza could be in me by Monday. All right. You know what it's like when food is calling you, when you're craving it, right? And, and there's, there's problems if, if you don't get that appetite under control as your doctor will tell you. But sin is appetizing. Sin, oh, I need more of, that in, more of that in my life. More of that person in my life. I need more of that habit. And if I could just cut loose and let that desire, don't crave sin. We're supposed to starve sin and feed our soul on God's righteous provision. If you go to the beach and the seagulls start landing around you, how many french fries does it take before all the seagulls on the beach are by your tent or your blanket? How many? One. You throw, you tell your kids, right, they got that bag of, free, of, uh, of a Cheetos, and they're looking at the seagull. And what do they do? Oh, that seagull looks hungry. No, that seagull looks evil. 
Okay, and ten of them are flying overhead, wondering if you're going to fall for it. You throw them one Cheeto, and pretty soon there's a million seagulls all around you. This is the way, this is the way our sinful desire works. If you feed it, more of them will come. You feed, when it comes to lust, you keep clicking. If you keep clicking, the desires will multiply. But if you starve it, the desire will go away. Not permanently, but you have to starve your sin. You have to, and then you have to feed your soul on God's righteous provision. Hey, are you filling your soul with God's word? Are you filling your heart with encouragement from God's people? I mean, are you like a water tower full? Or do you just have a little Dixie cup? You know, every now and then you take a little sip of your Bible. Like, are you full? My grass, I think it's possessed. My grass dies every year. I've got, I've got crabgrass. I've got creeping Charlie. I've got grubs. I've got all these problems. I just go to Home Depot and buy the whole shelf. All the stuff they have on the shelf for lawn, I just put it all into the cart, and then I go home, and I don't care if it's toxic because I, it's, I'm at war with these weeds in my grass. Huge chunks, you know, pulled out of my lawn. So I went, did it all, got grass seed, and, and I kept watering it, watering it, watering it. And within two weeks, the grass is all up. Your soul is the same way. Are you watering it, watering it, watering it? Are you watering it, or are you starving your soul of what it needs to live. Hey, are you stuck? Are you like that sheep in the tire swing? Are you saved? Have you asked Jesus to set you free? Are you stuck? The Israelites were stuck. Now we're moving on to number three. 50% of the sermon is yet to come. Everyone say, bring it. Come on. If anyone packs up, I will call you on stage and make you sit down. Number three, jot this down, leave sin behind. Leave sin behind. Now there's going to be four things that will keep you in the wilderness. Let's read on. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So write this a bonus note, write this down. Walk away from idolatry. Walk away from idolatry. Idolatry will keep you in the wilderness. Idolatry will surround you like a tire swing. Idolatry will prevent you from advancing in the Christian life. Yes, idolatry means literally bowing before a statue. In Exodus 32, this looks back to the golden calf, when Aaron had the great idea of saying the people are upset, Moses has been gone for 40 days, they think he died, they really want church, worship service, so I'll just make this golden calf and they can worship it. Big mistake. Idolatry. Idolatry. And 3,000 people were killed by the Levites. 3,000. Death toll, 3,000. Because when Moses came down the mountain, God had so revealed his glory to an ungrateful people that God said, they will all die if this is not taken care of. You can feel the outrage of the Lord. I just walked them through the sea. I just freed them. From slave, and they built this, you can feel the outrage of the Lord. And maybe you don't have in your den a golden statue that every once in a while you kneel in front of, you know. But someone once said the human heart is an idol factory. You have your idols, so do I. And God is just as outraged toward your idols as he was to the Israelites. 
Idolatry will keep you in the wilderness. A great definition of idolatry I read is this, giving your heart over to anyone or anything other than God. Idolatry is giving your heart, internal, over to anyone or anything other than God. Are you giving your heart over to anything, anyone, other than God? Do you know, things that are a lot smaller than God can completely block God out of your life. Things that are so small by measure of eternity can cover God up and eclipse Him so that you don't see Him anymore. And common idols in the heart include money, and money becomes the thing that you live for. And God only comes into the picture when he can help you get your real God, which is money. And money is a small thing eternally, uh, but money itself can cover up God entirely from your life so that you don't even see him or think about him. It's funny how the moon can cover up the sun, right? The moon can actually cover up the sun in an eclipse. Do you know how small the moon is and how big the sun is? You know, you know I like to find dorky science videos. I'm a Star Trek fan. I have some sci-fi love in me. Deal with it, all right? So I found this dorky video that shows proportionally how big the Earth is, the moon is, and the sun is. Check it out. Okay, there's the Earth on the left and the moon on the right. And this is to scale. Earth, moon, sun. Look at that little moon. Now, doesn't it make it amazing to think that that tiny little moon can cover up that gigantic sun? I mean, you have a inferno. And that tiny little dot can completely block it out? Now, things that you lust for, things that you, things you shouldn't make first place, things that are so big to you, your life is all about, you never stop talking about them, you're spending so much money on them, they can become what your heart is after. It's like the moon, and it's covering up God. And God is blazing in glory forever. But this tiny little thing is blocking him out. And if you're not careful, your idols, your idol, will totally block God out of your life. Walk away from idolatry. How do we find our idols? Well, our idols, idols lure us away from God. Our idols lure us away from God's law and, and lure us away from God's people. So... You will sin to get your idol. It could be a person. You'll sin to be around this person. Or, or it could be a habit or a thing. You'll sin to get it. And then you will sin to keep it. If this idol is threatened, you will sin to keep it. And then if it is taken away or threatened, you will sin to get it back. So follow your sin and you'll find your idol. We spend a lot of time on our idols. We spend a lot of money on our idols. We talk a lot about our idols. Our, we think a lot about our idols. And anything, anything can consume your heart. How do we get rid of our idols? Well, a Puritan man named Thomas Chalmers said, the heart is like a throne. The throne will always be occupied. So we don't remove idols. We replace them. Replace them. You have to replace that idol with the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring it to bow before him. I like what Timothy Lane said. He said, we worship our way into sin, 
and therefore we must worship our way out of sin. The reason we sin is because we think something other than God will make us happy. More satisfied or more safe. And, and you, your drive for security and your drive for satisfaction is what leads you to grab onto an idol. If I have this, then I will be more secure. Then I will be safe. Then I will be more satisfied. It's a lie. But this is how idolatry works. So what is it, who is it, who's competing in your heart with God for first place? Walk away from idolatry. Get that moon out of the sky that doesn't belong there and let God's glory blaze above your life. So leave sin behind. The first thing that will keep you in the wilderness is idolatry. Walk away. Next, sexual sin. Jot this down. Walk away from sexual sin. It says here, uh, verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. 23,000 fell. It's like a stadium. Dead. A stadium dead in a day. Would it make news if 23,000 died in a day in the United States of America? Global news. What happened? What happened? What did they do? Imagine if God's judgment did fall like it did then. Uh, they all got involved in sexual sin. This is like Woodstock in the wilderness. Okay? It looks back when it, when it says here, Sexual immorality, some of them did, 23,000 fell in a day. It looks back to the story we learned about Balaam and Balak. Balaam hired Balak to, to, or Balak hired Balaam to curse Israel, and the Lord kept overruling that, remember? And, and then Balaam said, all right, I can't do that, but just an idea. Send your women in to make friends with the Israelites and invite them to worship. Well... That's what happened. The women came in, and they met the Israelites. Oh, we're friends. And then they seduced them to come and worship the foreign gods. And, and their worship involved sexual activity. Okay, so, And Paul's writing to Corinth, and this was one of the struggles in Corinth. If you went in Corinth to the best restaurants, they were attached to the idol temples. And that was a big gray area with Christians. Okay, I want a good steak. It's attached to an idol temple. They literally offer the meat to a, a foreign god and then put it on the plate. What do I do? And Paul's like, eat it. He said, it's fine. Their gods are no gods at all. And everyone, all the men were like, yes, they can eat the steak. So it was a temptation. But here's the thing. Some of the idol temples in Corinth, too, involved sexual problems. Okay, so, so Paul's like, all right, yeah, eat the food, but don't sleep with the waitress, Okay. All right, these restaurants were like Hooters Plus in Corinth, all right? Like part brothel, part... Okay, are you following here? And this is why Paul looks back to Israel in the wilderness to warn the Corinthians about sexual sin. And we're being warned as well. Walk away from sexual sin. So you're hearing it right now. I don't know where you're at in life. I don't know where you're at in intimate relationships. But let me just, loud and clear, let me say this. Warning, warning, warning. 23,000 funerals in a day tell you how God feels about your sexual sin. Your sin will lie to you. 
If you're far enough into it, you won't even listen to me right now, but I'm sure there are some who still have their wits about them who might listen. And I assume there are people in this room who are being tempted in this area right now. Sexual sin is tons of fun in the beginning. So it's hard for people to hear the warning because to them, they finally have someone who makes them happy, who listens to them. They think this person has been brought by God himself into their life. And all of that is a lie. If you're developing an intimate, physical, deep, emotional relationship with anyone who hasn't given you a ring and promised you a lifetime before God, you need to get out of that relationship right now. You have no business being physically intimate with a person other than your spouse. Let me say it again. 23,000 funerals in a day tell you how God feels about you and that person. Don't be deceived. I don't care what the guys at the bar think about it. I don't care what your friends tell you on Facebook. This is, this is the Lord Almighty who you will stand before one day. And if I have the ability to break this power in your heart right now, walk away. Walk away from sexual sin. If the relationship you're in can be brought within God's standards and His law, then do it. But if it's an illicit relationship that you have no business being in, walk away. Leave sin behind. Walk, walk away from idolatry. Walk away from sexual sin. Number three, third sub-point, write this down. Walk away from defiance. Walk away from defiance. It says here in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. This idea of putting Christ to the test, putting the Lord from the test, in Deuteronomy 6.16 it says, do not put the Lord to the test. In Numbers like 21, 4 to 9, you see that there was a group of people who refused God's plan, resented God's provision, and then they rebelled against God's authority. They tested God. What they said was they accused God of leading them out into Egypt so that he could watch them die in the desert. They have found God guilty of being not good. Here's a picture of a gavel, and when you put God on trial, you're not going to a good place. When you, when you summon God, raise your right hand, swear to tell the truth. Where were you, God, on this night when this happened? Where were you, God? If your heart is defying God, you're trying God and finding Him guilty, this is sinning with a high hand. Accusing Him of being something He's not. Boy, you're on a collision with the Holy God and it won't end well. What did God do to the Israelites? He sent fiery serpents among them. They got bit by poisonous snakes and many of them died. This is what happens when God removes his hand of protection from them. My dad hates snakes. Hates them. And then one time when I was a teenager, a friend of mine brought me a snake for my birthday. Put it in a jar. I was so happy. Left it in the garage. Next day, dad walks into the garage, jar tipped over, snake gone. Dad says, pack it up, we're burning the house down. <laughs> Collect the insurance. That's that. Maybe you're not a snake person. Uh, how does God feel when my heart gets to the point where I'm accusing God, trying? He's no good. He has... Uh, well, we know how that ended. Hundreds of people died because they wouldn't stop putting God to the test. 
So it puts you in harm's way. But God's heart for you is not to say, you know, I'm going to kill you because you're, no. God, God actually, when they were in the wilderness, he had Moses put a snake on a staff, right? The golden, uh, the bronze snake on the staff, lifted it up. Anyone who turns in repentance, who got bit by the snake, will live. And that's a portrait of Jesus, who would be lifted up. And anyone who turns to the son, who died on the cross, uh, could be healed from the serpent bite of sin. That Boy, that just takes you right back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? The serpent bite of sin, the lies of the enemy that you fell for. Look to the Son and you can be healed and you can live even though you were uh, supposed to die. And this is the secret. In Ephesians 6.16, it says that faith shields us from the fiery darts of the enemy. Are you struggling with faith? Are you struggling to believe that God is who he said he is? Are you putting him to the test in your heart? Oh, if I could talk to God, I'd ask him a bunch of questions. Because Is your heart hard toward God? Faith? Faith shields you from the fiery darts of the enemy. And look at the cross. What more does God need to do to convince you that he loves you? What more does he need to do? He gave his only son. Look, look to the cross in repentance and believe that God is for us. So walk away from defiance. Walk away, walk away from idolatry. Walk away from sexual sin. And finally, walk away from grumbling. Walk away from grumbling. It says here in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. That's the destroying angel of the Lord. Grumbling. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So why? Why should I listen to this? Why should I walk away from these sins? Because we're like in overtime in human history. The, the, we're in the end. Okay, we're in the end. And, and so the gravity, the urgency of our obedience is so much more because we have the full word of God. Jesus came, and if we make the same mistake these folks made in the wilderness, wow, walk away from grumbling. This is referring to Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16 where he rose up, they challenged Moses, and how did it end? Well, his followers who were standing before the uh, tabernacle were consumed by fire. Okay, so God sent a flamethrower out, lightning from above to consume them. And, and then an earthquake swallowed up entire families who rose up against Moses, and the ground closed back over them. And then the next day, the people grumbled and said to Moses, you killed God's people, and another 14,000 died in a plague. This is how our God feels about grumbling. What did they do? What did they do? They grumbled. They turned on God's leaders, and they grumbled and divided the people. Walk away from grumbling. This closing challenge is a fitting way to close this series. Paul says, no temptation, or verse 12, Paul says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Listen, don't fall. We're so close. We're so close. Johnny Erickson Tata said, heaven is about to happen. Heaven is about to happen. Walk away from sin. We are on our way home. Are you saved? Are you stuck? Leave sin behind and don't fall. We're going to close by me showing you a video here of Alexander Hanold, one of the most famous free climbers in the country. He climbs mountains with no ropes. No ropes, just his hands and his feet. And I'm going to invite the worship team up here right now. And as they come, watch this video and listen. Don't 
fall. Check it out. Stand and sing the bridge. <laughs> 